Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 69 of X-Lapsed, and uh, it's X-Force Day. And uh, if you look at this cover, we see Domino, Wolverine, and Kid Omega in, like, their safari or jungle gear, which I feel like if this issue came out in the mid-90s would be a sign that we're going to get some Toy Biz figures with uh, these very costumes, because they did a lot of that weird stuff back then. Anyway, let's get into it here. This is X-Force, Volume 6, Number 9. Had a May 2020 cover date. The story's called The Moral Jungle. Written by Benjamin Percy, with art by Joshua Cassara. Colors, Dean White. Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna. Designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White, Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99, and went on sale March 18th of 2020. Now we open... With a weird game of uh, Spin the Bottle mixed with Russian Roulette. Uh, Scout, who is a character I didn't even know was a thing, is officiating a round pitting Wolverine versus Dakin, or Dakin, or however you say the kid's name. Now you see, they both have their fists held up to their own heads, and should the bottle point at them when it stops spinning, they gotta pop their clothes. You know, family time is a is a real good thing in the, in the Howlet uh home, I guess. Well, it turns out the thing stops while it's pointing at Dakin, who then, as the rules dictate, drives his claws through his own brain. He ain't dead or anything, he's just gonna need some, you know, healing time. This is a Wolverine family member, of course. Now, it's worth noting, for those of you who were as confused as I was about this Scout character, I did a little bit of research. Scout is Gabby Kinney, the clone of X-23, who as far as I can remember, is a clone of Wolverine, so I guess it makes perfect sense. Now, I gotta hand it to Percy here for not just jamming X-23 in here, right? I mean, I feel like, you know, continuity between the books is, uh, you know, a little slippery. So we know from reading that issue of X-Men a few months back that X-23 is in the vault with Darwin and uh, Sink. So it's nice to know that at least someone on the creative team is reading the rest of the line. So, thumbs up to you there. So now, where in the world are we? Where is this happening, this Russian roulette spin the bottle dealy? Well, we've heard rumblings and rumors of a place like this existing. It's where the Krakoan elite go to meet, eat, and uh, eventually bang. It's the Green Lagoon. And, oh boy, do we get an awesome two-page splash of this joint. It is... Amazing. I mean, like, everybody's here, <laughs> and it's awesome. Uh, we see the Blob serving drinks in, like, a tent-sized Hawaiian shirt. Uh, Dazzler's performing on stage. Uh, even Professor X and Magneto can be seen hanging out here. It's it's just a really, really fun page. 
Now, if you're following along with the show and you're not reading the issues here and you don't feel like picking this one up, do yourselves a favor and just track down this two-page spread. Uh, It's pages four and five of the comic. So it's more than likely that Marvel included it with their preview packets. So anywhere they're previewing this book or reviewing this book, you should find this page. So it shouldn't be too hard to come by. Now, staying at the lagoon, we shift our focus over to Sage and the newly revived Domino. Sage, it's worth noting, is very much off-duty. Her hair is down and everything, which Domino immediately points out. Sage responds by noting how happy and light Domino appears to be. Now, they talk a bit about all the trauma that Domino went through prior to her death, and Domino kind of shrugs it off. Sage asks if uh, those memories have been erased, which, I mean... If we're remembering right, Domino's whole thing is that she wanted to be brought back, like, whole, with all of her experiences intact, right? Well, Domino shrugs again and comments that she's aware of all the stuff that happened, but it's almost as though it happened to somebody else. Huh. Yeah, I think we're going to be talking about that later. Uh, This doesn't make much sense to Sage, uh, especially considering Dom's final wishes, Domino shrugs again, and suggests that perhaps she decided not to include all of her poisonous memories and experiences. Huh, yeah, we will, we'll be back to that later. First, let's do our roll call. Wolverine, Scout, Dakin, Marvel Girl, Domino, Sage, Black Tom Cassidy, Gorgeous George, Beast, and Kid Omega. Then, you know, two pages of credits. It's worth noting here, Scout, Dakin, and Marvel Girl, they just, (laughs) we're not going to see them again, I don't believe. But I guess we had slots on the roll call, we just really needed to fill. Okay, back to comics and back to the lagoon. We go to Black Tom, who is busy Black Tomming around, uh, acting like a big old paranoid weirdo. It would seem he's getting kind of burned out on all of his duties, and he is suddenly attacked by Gorgeous George. If you've never heard of this one before, well... I doubt you'd be alone. Uh, Gorgeous George was one of the vaunted nasty boys, and uh, not the knobs and sags variety either. These were some goofballs from the early Peter David X-Factor series. So, uh, The nasty boys, I believe they reported, or they, they answered to Mr. Sinister, I believe. So, didn't We haven't seen them much since. Now Sage steps in and super kicks George, which prompts a full-scale bar fight. Wolverine and his family leap into the fray, and before we know it, it's a fracas. Beast steps in to inform Wolverine that, uh, hey, all that violence you got, I need it pointed elsewhere. So we're going we're gonna to move into that right now. But first, an info page with some stuff regarding Terra Verde. Uh, the little nation went completely off the grid after our last go-round there, and now this is obviously what X-Force is going to have to be looking into. And back to comics, our team for this outing is just, uh, well, the three from the cover, Domino, Wolverine, and Quentin. Here, Logan chats up Dom about her new lease on life. She comments that she's finally able to sleep again, which doesn't exactly pass Logan's smell test, but he doesn't really press her on it. He just wants her to be happy. Quentin goes to uh, step through a Kurokoan gateway to Terra Verde, and uh, he winds up call me Kading smack dab into it, as in he can't go through it. Which you might be wondering, has he now been forsaken by Krakoa? Well, no, 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 that's not it at all. Actually, there's just something blocking the other end of the gate. And so Wolverine jams his claws through the thing, and when he pulls back, they're covered in jellied blood. Quentin pulls out his psychic cannon gimmick and dislodges the blockage. Now, that blockage, by the way, was a whole bunch of coagulated bodies and vegetation. Now, once inside through the portal, 
Quentin gets beast on the walkie and asks why Gene and Sage weren't part of this mission. Which, uh, yeah, it's a pretty good question, isn't it? Beast says they're, like, on R&R right now. Yeah, and that, uh, he'll be their man in the chair for this mission. And immediately I wondered if, uh, maybe Gene was given time off since, you know, last time. Beast made her kill all those, uh, plant people? I don't know, maybe. I think it's gonna be more than that, but that's what I was thinking when I read this the first time. Now, as for Sage not being there, eh, let's not look a gift horse in the mouth, right? Now, Beast tells them they need to find President Kokom, and, uh, well, no sooner does he say that than they do. Unfortunately, he's strung up, uh, like, uh, as Domino puts it, a biological chandelier. Like, he's just all sorts of messed up here, and he's, he's quite dead, of course. Quentin performs a telepathic uplink of some of the botanicals for Beast to examine, and he notes that there are Mayan markings on them. I probably ought to mention by now that Choir keeps calling McCoy Beastie, which old Hank doesn't seem to appreciate, and uh, it isn't nearly as funny as I think it's intended to be. Eh. Now Wolverine steps out onto the balcony, and we get a real good look at Terra Verde, and the whole village is overcome with those same weird botanicals. Next, an info page, and Beast is talking about telefloronics. And there's a bit in here about Terra Verde's history of worshipping plants and uh, plant gods or something like that. Back to comics. Our team proceeds through the overgrown jungle. In a cute bit, Quentin complains about how hot and sticky it is. And so, Wolverine performs a bit of on-the-spot tailoring, pretty much ripping Quentin Quire's clothes to uh, very fashionable shreds. They happen across a weird feline-plant-beast hybrid thing. And Quentin once again inquires why Gene and Sage aren't here. Wolverine assumes that this little trip was never intended to be a diplomatic visit. And so it's just the herdier members of the team who were needed. Domino isn't so sure about that and feels like Quentin's question has merit. And altogether they wonder if maybe there's something Beast isn't telling them. Speaking of Beast... He's still on Krakoa, and he's looking to bring in some backup for the X-Force team, and, uh, it's Black Tom, who is, as per usual, is busy Black Tomming. Beast tells, suggests that Tom needs a break from Krakoa, and so he's got a job for him. Meanwhile, back in, uh, in Terra Verde, Quentin Quire is being overcome by a whole lot of edge. He makes a frantic call to Beast, revealing that Terra Verde itself isn't a hostile country, but perhaps an angry god. And we are to be continued. Next episode, we're going to go giant size with Nightcrawler, but first, let's talk about another very solid issue of X-Force. Now, to be honest, I wasn't expecting to revisit Terra Verde quite so quickly, but I'm happy that we're there. I'm happy that this is being addressed. That was a a real neat, loose end that uh, I was looking forward to having tied up, so it's nice that we're getting at least some more uh, in that direction. We probably ought to begin our discussion with the heaviest part of the issue, which, at least in my opinion, is all about Domino. Now, clearly, she's back. And obviously, we didn't know she was going to be dead long. Um, We saw that she was on the cover of this issue. Uh, She died at the last page of last issue, so... We weren't expecting this one to uh, to be backburnered for very long. So she's back, and what's more, she's happy. Now, all the pain and torment she experienced toward the end of her last life, I guess, uh, particularly all the just 
damn utter insanity she was put through at the hands of Zeno in South Korea is gone. Like, she says she knows that it happened, right? It just feels to her like it might have happened to somebody else. She's aware of the things that went down. Now let's talk about that. Because the way I look at it, this could be due to a couple of different things. The first angle we can look at is Professor X diddled with her memories prior to the resurrection. That's right back to our X-lapsed theory A, right? I mean, that's we've been talking about this almost every single episode. Xavier would have to realize that, despite Dom's wishes, that she'd be much more useful and effective without all the baggage. I mean, she was clearly a different person after the events of uh, the body shop in South Korea. And so maybe the professor preferred her to her pre-Zeno, you know, personality and behavior. That really... That really makes me want to see Domino's will, if in fact she had one. And I mean, we've heard very, we've heard very little to this point about the the concept of a mutant will. We only know that they exist, and that some of them are pretty crazy. Some of them want to be brought back with Magneto's powers and in Magneto's body, right? We've heard this. You know, if Domino didn't have a will, well, you'd hope that Xavier would have abided by what Colossus told him as it pertained to Domino's dying wish. But we just don't know. Now, another angle we can look at is another fairly well-trodden concept for this program, and that's that these resurrected mutants are indeed not the same characters, right? I mean, sure, they have the same memories, which is to say they know that certain things happened, right? But it's as though those things happened to other people, is what Domino says. And I mean, it is another body, another brain, may as well be another person altogether, I guess. Now, this idea kind of ignores the possibility that Xavier made any edits, at least on the face of it, because, I mean, there is the possibility that we have some sort of an amalgamation of the two, or maybe a third that I'm not even considering. I'm trying to think back to other resurrectees that we've seen and followed to see if we get any, like, clear confirmation on what they recall about their prior life and how the experiences and memories of their last life have stayed with them and and affect them, or perhaps have not, you know? uh, If anyone listening out there can can think of any examples, please let me know of some characters to to maybe focus on who may have uh, debunked all this. I gotta say, though, I really appreciate this take from Percy, uh, with Domino acting so, I don't know, happy-go-lucky, I guess? I love that it's triggering skeptical reactions from folks like Sage and Wolverine. And I gotta wonder what's gonna happen when Domino and Colossus finally share panel space again. That should be very interesting. And I also wonder if this might me- might lead to some more of those uh, cracks in the foundation that Nightcrawler was talking about during the Crucible. You know, will, will mutants be able to trust the Resurrection Protocols? Like, if there's no guarantee that their final wishes will be honored, then, I mean, they're pretty much at Xavier or the island's mercy. They're going to be made into whatever they're needed to be made into. I think this could lead to some very interesting stuff where they just don't trust the process. And that could lead to those little fractures and cracks that Nightcrawler was talking about growing into some great big schisms. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll, we'll think about that. Now, speaking of not being able to trust something, well, let's talk about our man in the chair, B-1. 
beast. It's pretty obvious he's not telling the team everything, right? I mean, he's clearly holding back information, and uh, I'm pretty sure that is why Sage and Gene were left out of this mission, right? I mean, maybe not because Gene was forced to do something she didn't want to do, but maybe because Gene will be able to figure some stuff out. I feel like this trip into Terra Verde is uh, of the tying up loose ends variety, and Hank probably figures that Wolverine and company will probably ask the fewest questions and make him squirm <laughs> a little less than than a gene or a sage would. And I like this. Um, I mean, as I mentioned a few times already, I'm hoping that this little story arc here ends with Beast hitting rock bottom and then maybe starting on something of a redemption arc. Maybe we should uh, print up ball caps that say, Make Beast Fun Again. Um, I'll, I'll have to keep that in our X-lapsed bad idea pile, right? So what else? What else? What else? Uh, the Green Friggin' Lagoon. How much fun was this? Uh, seeing all these characters canoodling and cavorting in a social setting? I probably wouldn't mind an entire issue of this. I mean, hell, make it a giant size or an annual, and just let us watch our favorites just chat for an issue. I'm not asking for an ongoing Green Lagoon series or nothing. Just an issue will do. Just fine. But uh, I think it's a nice way to touch base. It's a nice way to see some of these characters interact. Who we're just... We talked... I don't remember which episode it was. But we talked recently about casts... I think it was the last issue of X-Men. That the casts are just too big. You know? And we're getting a lot of background. We're getting like... I think we had Danny Moonstar in, in like four issues of New Mutants. And she had like one line. You know, it's uh, there. There's way too many characters here, and it's hard to. I know it's really hard to identify with all the characters the way we used to. It feels like uh, there was more of a priority placed on the characters and the interpersonals, and and I'm pretty sure I've made this same observation slash complaint very recently. Right now, we're we're everything is hinging on concept rather than character, where. Hey, give us, give us a, give us an annual, give us an X Men annual where they're just hanging out at the Green Lagoon and talking and remembering old times, and we can, you know, just see how people are doing. We can check in. I think that would go a long way um, in showing how strong these characters are when they're not taking a backseat to very, very spacey concepts. Now, the art here was really good. It was nice to see Kassara's takes on all of the Krakoan characters. Um, in particular, it was cool seeing how huge he drew Apocalypse. Apocalypse is like sharing a table with Gene and Scott. And, uh, I mean, Gene and Scott look like normal human-sized folks, but Apocalypse is massive. And it really gets the point across that there, there's some huge size discrepancies here. Uh, also, the gore. There was a lot of gore here, but it was very well done. And despite being, like, really gross, it didn't feel explicitly so. Does that make does that make sense? You know, we know it's gore, we know it's gross, but it doesn't... It doesn't, uh... It doesn't insist upon itself. I don't know. All I do know is that I like the way this book looks, so <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Um, overall, I enjoyed this one a lot. I'd be almost tempted to consider this a red issue. You know, going back to the, uh... Reading order lists where certain issues were highlighted in red to signify that they were important or can't miss. I would be tempted 
to highlight this one in red, considering that we're dealing with some questions regarding the resurrection protocols. I feel like this is important stuff. I think that uh, we're, you know, we're planting seeds here that might be expanded on as we continue. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well. And uh, hey, speaking of which, let's hop directly into the mailbag here. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Excalibur number eight. Now he starts with... Sounds like you're really suffering with your sinuses at the moment. I know I had a terrible summer with my allergies, made worse by the fact that we were all trying to do things outside to alleviate the risk of coronavirus. I hope it all feels better soon. I know how frustrating it is not hearing properly. It's worse this year because you can't resort to lip reading. And yes, thank you. It's it's been a pretty rough few weeks here. Um, not, Not outside of... Uh, you know, I'm familiar with this sensation is what I'm trying to say. Uh, I'm, I'm used to going through this during the season change, but this year, the summer just refuses to let go. <laughs> Usually, um, our weather breaks probably early, mid-October, and then we stay around like 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit, but this October, we were still in the hundreds, you know? Um, even just this week, our temperatures are breaking into the 90s. I mean, it, we're we're... As I record this, we're a week away from Thanksgiving, and we're in the 90s. It's ridiculous. So my poor sinuses just can't make up their mind here. Uh, it doesn't know what time of year it is, and it it really, really sucks. But so far, I'm doing good. I think uh, I'm doing a lot better here. My the, the hearing isn't as cloggy or echoey as it uh, was a little while back, but it's still it's still not perfect yet, or as perfect as I can get. Uh, Damien continues. I need to start by repeating something I said in my feedback to the last issue of Excalibur. Hunting with dogs has been banned in the UK since 2004. I think this is the crime Betsy's worried about. There's an awareness of how involved the upper classes are in hunting, and and a member of the establishment would be scared of getting caught hunting. A few years ago, there was a bit of an uproar when footage of the queen strangling a grouse went viral. Shooting grouse remains legal, and apparently it's common to break the necks of injured birds, but public opinion has become very anti-hunting, so it was a very big story. If Captain Britain, who who self-identifies as establishment in this issue, was to be filmed actually breaking the law on hunting, it would be a really big story. And uh, that's a very good point. I think I focus more on the mutant element. Than the public figure deal. Uh, I just assumed that should Betsy and company go down for hunting, Cullen would as well. Um, it seemed like a no-win situation for him, so why would he, you know, turn himself in? And also, I wondered, like, how would the Coven help with any of that? Because he was reaching out to the Coven, and I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Damien continues. You talked a bit about identity politics and how it interacts with fandom, and I think there is some strong political material in this issue. Marginalized groups often identify with the mutant metaphor. From the 60s, creators have compared mutant rights to the civil rights movement. Lee and Kirby started by by comparisons to anti-Semitism and racism, but as time went on, writers like Claremont added on feminism and gay liberation. I am a gay man who grew up in the intense homophobia of the 1980s, and I definitely identified with the struggle to be accepted that mutant kind faced. People forget how political the X-Men were in the 80s and 90s, in part because it's easy to overlook that element when you're not marginalized. The challenge writing the mutant metaphor today cannot be underemphasized. Readers reflect the political reality of the world outside the comics page and have incompatible expectations of stories. 
You cannot remove the anti-mutant sentiment from the X-Men stories, and you end up inevitably reflecting real-world situations. Jubilee says she's still a mutant when she's not using her powers, and I'm reminded of being told that I shouldn't flaunt my homosexuality by mentioning that I have a husband. I am gay, even if I don't tell anyone I'm gay. I'm married to a man. That is no different from a man who is married to a woman, and if people want me to hide that, that fact, the problem is them, not me. The scene at the dinner table is far more real and important to me, important to me for that real-life parallel which other people may find heavy-handed or forced. And that's it. That's a very good point, and not one I considered. Um, I just took it as like a semantic discussion, and perhaps, perhaps a bit of virtue signaling from the writer, but didn't actually consider the ramifications of what was being said and how true the sentiment actually is. And I mean, this is why I love this mailbag portion of this program, having such amazing folks along with us for this ride here. It's, um, I feel like I learn something every day, and uh, and being able to see things through other people's point of views is. Is fantastic. Uh, Damien continues. The struggle that modern writers have is that they just don't have to deal with a metaphor as they have to tell stories with characters who are marginalized. These The stories take on different textures once you have characters who aren't just stand-ins for the marginalized but are also members of this group. You get the real-life situation of intersectionality. Richter is gay, working-class, and Hispanic as well as being a mutant. Cullen Bloodstone is gay, white, and aristocratic. They have as many differences as they do similarities. Cullen only sees gayness because he's blind to his privilege and thinks that he's the same as Richter. This kind of real-life political content can feel like it's virtue signaling, but it is the logical logical extension of each character's experience. We often talk about whether or not changes are in character and we can only infer from past stories. This encounter fits how Cullen is presented. He has the kind of arrogance and sense of entitlement that he would hit on everyone he finds attractive. Another very good point. Very, very good point. Um, to me, and I mean, um, I don't have any sort of first, second, third-hand experience with anything and have absolutely no credibility, but uh, I still can't shake the feeling that this scene was a little reductive. Um, I mean, a forced kiss is kind of unsubtle. Um, I mean, hitting, I, I don't know if maybe, maybe I'm being too uh, specific, you know? Maybe I'm expecting hitting on and kissing uh, to be two different things. I just, I can't help but shake the feeling that if a male character forced himself on a female character in such a way, this scene would have been viewed far differently. I mean, even if the man was clearly portrayed as a villain or just an asshole, I'm not sure how well this scene would have played. I don't don't know if that makes any sense, uh, or if I'm just talking out my ass right now. As I've mentioned time and again, I'm uncomfortable talking about things I have very little in the way of first, second, third-hand experience in, but uh, I still come away from this scene feeling like it was, uh, it could have been more done more subtly. Um, but I, I mean, again, what do I know? <laughs> uh, Damien continues. For this reason, I don't find that it's forced to situations in other books where two gay characters are set up as a couple. I remember years ago in the issue of Hulk where Rick Jones got married, Peter David put North Star and Hector together solely because they were the only gay men at the event. That was forced. This felt entirely in character to me. And oh boy, poor North Star. Uh, we could probably go on for days about how he was used and abused as nothing more than, like, the gay character. Um, hell, you know, we could probably spend hours just talking about the way he was depicted during the Chuck Austin Uncanny run. 
that was some bad stuff. I I didn't write that stuff, and I feel the need to apologize for it. That's that is bad stuff. Oof. You know, and uh, with North with North Star, I I don't want to say I took issue with North Star's own wedding issue, um, but I, I think it could have been done. I think it could have been done better. Um, I felt like the entire deal was a, a little bit stunty, um, and that Marvel was racing to be the first mainstream comics company to do the the same sex wedding. And as such, I feel personally like they did North Star a disservice. Um, the entire relationship felt like a whirlwind, and I get why the you know the, the event is important both in comics and society, but. It really felt like Marvel was more focused on beating DC to doing this than actually telling a meaningful story. And I feel like with something as big as this, you need to tell a meaningful story. I remember I was on a message board around the time this came out, and uh, discussion about this was uh, was kind of, I don't want to say heated, but it was a thing that was going on in comics at the time. People were talking about it. And uh, the question I asked was, what's North Star's husband's name? And nobody could answer the question. Nobody knew his name. And it's like, hmm. You know, I, I, it just felt like, I don't know, it just didn't feel as special as it should have when you couldn't even name the other person in the relationship. Again, this is me possibly talking out of my ass. So I, I take it with a, with a shaker or two of salt. Uh, Damien continues. I also feel I have to comment on the foolishness of the speakers you had on your comics course. When you study something as an academic discipline, you have to accept that you will look at small amounts in great detail and won't necessarily know everything. It's essential to remain humble enough to accept that you could learn more from someone else, even if they're not an academic. I have a degree in theology, and my best grades were in biblical studies, but I'm not a believer, and I know that most Christians will be more familiar with the Bible than me. Even now, 24 years from my finals, I think I could give a three-hour lecture on the first chapter of John's Gospel, but couldn't even tell you what's in chapter two. I would have thought discovering that a living Hispanic artist was responsible for a panel that they were using to show shorthand in comics would be a great spur to further study and would greatly enhance their work. The fact is, the fact that it's drawn by a Hispanic man doesn't instantly excuse it, but it should be acknowledged and investigated. And yes... And, and, I mean, I totally understand that the fact that Perez drew this panel doesn't outright excuse it as being, you know, unracist or not, in their words, you know, shorthand. But I felt as though these Ph.D. lecturers, because they were Ph.D.s, they told us that a lot, they really should have known a thing or two about the topic they were allegedly educating us on. Um, it felt like, and, I mean, talk about reductionist, it feels like... Like, all their comics knowledge came from, like, a BuzzFeed list or something. It's like, top ten you know, racist panels in comics. Number seven, I'll shock you, you know? I thought, I almost expected them to drift off into a discussion about the, you know, the top 60 worst Rob Liefeld drawings or something. It was, eh. <laughs> it was irritating. Um, now, as a self-proclaimed fake-ass comics historian, and uh, probably the only person in that lecture with an intrinsic interest in comics and their history, stuff like this felt very half-assed and dismissive of so many factors. Um, I mean, I already mentioned the sales risks, you know. Uh, there's there's also the idea that editorial might have been fearing for their jobs, and, 
you know, heck, in certain parts of the country and the world, their safety in presenting non-white characters this way. I don't know, there's a lot to chew on. Um, sadly, our guest speakers would have rather engaged in, like, inch-deep, mile-wide outrage rather than actual facts that were rooted in, like, the gestalt and, and actual context. So, you know, I, I, they were there, they had, they had a point they wanted to make, and uh, they weren't interested in anything else, unfortunately. Uh, Damien continues. It's interesting to me that Trevor Von Eden considers elements of his Black Lightning comics to be racist, but he still drew them. He chose not to fight that fight, even though he is clearly a champion of civil and creator rights. From reading interviews, it seems that he would have th- that he thought he could have more influence as an insider going along with some tone-deaf things than risk- by risking his career fighting everything. Maybe a similar thing happened with Perez, but it's their job to interrogate the added information. That's absolutely a possibility. Um, and I mean, I don't know George Perez. Uh, I almost met him this one time, but uh, he looked like he was having a pretty rough day, so I chickened out from waving and saying hello. Uh, I mean, for all I know, he was drawing exactly what he was told to draw in that panel, or maybe he was drawing what he figured he was expected to draw. I don't know if he's a religious fellow, or even comes from a religious family, so the iconography may very well have been shorthand even to him. Damien continues, It's interesting that people who are not comics fans would choose to study the cultural influence of comics, but maybe it's easier if you're not involved in it. I know I found it easier to study theology than some of my friends with faith. It's easier to question things you don't hold as articles of faith. And I definitely feel like I might have been a little too inside, you know, the comics industry to appreciate what this lecture was supposed to provide. Though, you know, if I weren't, I'd probably blindly accept everything they said. Um, I mean, they, you know, after all, they were PhDs. They, they did tell us that about 70 hundred times over the course of 45 minutes. So they got to know what they're talking about, right? Eh, you know, the appeal to authority there is uh, strong. Uh, on that subject, they also touched on another big academic talking point as it pertains to comics, and it's another one that really gets under my skin, and it's the formation of the Comics Code Authority, which, as expected, they distilled down to angrily waving their fists in the air and cursing that damn Dr. Wortham, which, uh, if you're a listener of Weird Comics History, you'll know that uh, that's going to annoy me. (laughs) Now, if you haven't listened to the first five episodes of Weird Comics History where... Reggie and I spent like eight hours discussing the formation of the Comics Code and the relatively very small part Wortham actually played in it. I'll link to them in the show notes. Um, Those episodes are, if I do say so myself, probably some of our best work. Uh, We put hundreds of hours of research into those, so I'll link to them. And if uh, if folks haven't heard them before and are interested uh, and want to know why I get annoyed when people distill the Comics Code Authority over to damn that Dr. Wortham, then you'll know why after you listen to that show. Uh, Damien wraps up with, It's amazing how deep you're going with these books and how many directions you're sending me off in. Thank you. It's so much fun to really dig deep. It gives me so much extra enjoyment. To which I say, no, thank you. Um, it's amazing getting such awesome discussion here. Um... Who'd have thought we'd be able to have such deep, meaningful, and thought-provoking conversations on an X-Men podcast, right? It's, uh, it's, I can't even put into words. It's just so awesome, and, and thank you so, so much. Next, I got a message from Chris Bailey, who hopefully I'll be getting back into the recording uh, studio with pretty soon here. He wanted me to pass along that there's currently a really good deal for Marvel Unlimited, a whole year subscription for only $60, which... 
That's what, like five bucks a month? Not bad at all. So if you're wanting to check out some of the books we're talking about here, and if you're a, unlike me, if you're able to enjoy comics digitally, that's a pretty good option for you all. So I think that's a, that'd be a pretty cool thing if, uh, if you don't have that and if you're interested in it. That's a that's a screaming deal, and uh, you you can uh, put in put in code XLAPS. No no no, there's there's no XLAPS code. They don't they don't know that I exist, and uh, they they probably never will. So if they if there is an option, you know, how did you find us? Say XLAPS, and they'll be like, well, what the hell's that? And then they'll come and shut me down for using artwork. But uh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Chris, for uh, for uh, turning us on to that. Next. Mark, Green Lantern HG, he is talking about, well, one of Rod Damian's recent letters here. He says, great episode, Chris. I'm on board with rioting until we get a Generation X comic. You're damn right. We need one of those. And listening to Damian's letter made me realize what's stopping Professor X, or anyone for that matter, from creating their own mutant. If memories can be manipulated before rebirth, then what's making us uh, believe that, they're, that these are, in fact, the mutants we know? What if they're erasing their personalities and substituting them with someone else? Now I need proof that this is our X-Men. I'm sorry to sound so negative, but I don't know how else to feel. Great job, Chris. Yeah, it's very, very true, and it's so appropriate that I'm reading this with this episode, where we, we've got Domino coming back to life totally different from uh, how we left her, right? I mean, she was tormented, tortured, couldn't sleep, was just... Just a, a, a bundle of pain, basically. And here she is like, yeah, that's cool, you know? It's, uh, it really makes you question how what goes into the resurrection process and just how, how fine the tweezer can be, right? Like, how many things can Professor X pluck? How many inconveniences can he pluck out of their, uh, out of their minds, out of their personalities, out of their psyches? It really makes you question a lot of things. And I mean, I, I you know I hate to be the broken record here, but we're really that's just another that's just another arm we're snapping off the toys here, right? I mean the toys are getting broken more and more and more, and now I mean we we don't know where this is going to end, you know? I, if this is going to be a repeated experiment where every time out we start to we start to take out the bits that don't work, you know it's. I mean, that's kind of apocalypse, this whole thing, right? Survival of the fittest and, you know, the weak dying out. What happens if Domino dies next issue, and when she comes back again, she's a little bit changed even more? And all we're doing is gradually getting to the point where these will be completely different characters. Not just not just slightly different, but 100%, you know, different characters. It's... I worry about that. Um, I, I probably should be more optimistic and realize that, that Hickman and company have a plan, but uh, hell, you know, they might have a plan that I just don't like is, is maybe what I'm worried about. But thank you so much for, uh, for, for listening and sharing your thoughts there, Mark. Next, Andrew, Mighty Evil Doom. He's got some words about Major X number five. He says, I've really, I've really enjoyed these episodes. It's very hard to follow what is even happening, but the seemingly random nature of the plot is kind of fun. I'd be kind of interested in a Liefeld Namor book. Oof. Well, I guess if he's doing Namor, I wouldn't have to read it. So I think I'd be okay with that. Unless it's a part of Dawn of X Wave 4, and Namor does decide to move to Krakoa. 
and they put Liefeld on it, then I guess we'll have to read it, won't we? But uh, <laughs> I, I do appreciate the kind words about Major X Lapsed, because uh, if you ask me, nobody listens to that. So uh, it's always a treat to hear that, <laughs> that people have listened and have enjoyed it. And that, uh, you know, I, I am curious about how well I'm putting this together, because if you're not following Major X, then... I don't know how you're following my synopsis of it because I can barely follow my synopsis of it. It's just all over the place. But uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a message from Ed Moore. And this is about a question I've asked a few times on this program regarding just what in the hell the Scarlet Witch is. Is she a mutant? Is she a miracle? Is she an inhuman? Is she all of the above? None of the above? Well, he wrote in and said, I think James Robinson's Scarlet Witch series pretty much cemented that she's a homo sapien sorceress who pretended to be a mutant. Well, there you have it. I, you know, I guess that's a... We talked about Franklin being unmutanted last episode. Now we have confirmation, or at least I have confirmation. Uh, the rest of you probably already knew that Scarlet Witch has been demutanted. Um, and yeah, I guess that solves a problem uh, insofar as being able to cram her into whatever movie they want to. Uh, the last I read where the Scarlet Witch's origin was discussed was during, I want to say it was Axis. I don't remember what year that was. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was before the 2015 Secret Wars. And I know it was after AVX, so probably pencil it in around 2013, 2014-ish. And that's where... We found out that uh, that she uh, and Quicksilver shared no blood with Magneto, which is uh, was like the first big sign that uh oh, you know they're not mutants. And then, did I imagine that they were called miracles? Maybe I imagined that. It's a weird thing to imagine. I'm almost annoyed at myself for doing that if that's the case. But I think they were called miracles because they couldn't think of an actual like real thing to call them. And now, as a as Ed lets us know here, she's just a human sorceress who uh, who either thought she was a mutant or pretended to be a mutant or was just uh, misidentified, I guess. So thank you for, uh, for filling in that blank for us, Ed. And uh, thank you, everybody, for writing in. And if you'd like to write in, you can uh, reach me very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter and at WeHadComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at chrisoninfiniteearths.com, also xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about the X-Men on 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can hear the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Of course, those, uh, those that darn Wortham episodes are there, so uh, I will link to those if I, if I remember to in the show notes. Hopefully I'll remember to. Um... But I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, next episode, we are, of course, going giant-sized. And I think right after that, we're going into Hellions. So it's going to be an interesting couple of episodes coming up. And at least it'll be a change of pace, right? <laughs> Sometimes that's what we need. But that's where we'll leave for today. Uh, just one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing their time with me today. And uh, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya.